You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. Ray Russell and Rosalie Parker are the creators and publishers of Tartarus Press. This is a small press in England that has done some of the most important work of the last half century of of publishing uh, weird fiction. Ray is the editor of eight editions of Guide to First Edition Prices, Short story collections by Ray include, I don't have time to tell them all, but they include Leave Your Sleep, Death Makes Strangers of Us All. His novellas include Bloody Baudelaire, which was made into a film, The Dark Return of Time, The Stones Are Singing. His nonfiction includes Occult Territory and Arthur Mockham Gazetteer, Past Lives of Old Books and Other Essays, and Sylvia Townsend Warner, A Bibliography. His music includes Ghosts, released on Clongery, Bloody Baudelaire, a soundtrack, also released on Clongery, The Romance of Shortwave Radio Number Stations, gotta love a recording with that title, and his latest work is Phantom Cities by the Sodality of Shadows. His novels include She Sleeps, and his newest novel is Waiting for the End of the World. Rosalie Parker has uh, is the author of short story collections that include The Old Knowledge and other stories, Damage, Sparks from the Fire, Through the Storm is her latest collection. She's the editor of the Strange Tales series from Tartarus Press. She's also edited collections by H.G. Wells, Robert Louis Stevenson, Edith Wharton, Ambrose Breeze, and Nathaniel Hawthorne, a personal favorite of mine. Together, they've worked on films including Coverdale, A Year in the Life, uh, Current 93, Live at Halifax Minister in 2014. Thank you for joining me, Ray and Rosalie. <laughs> you guys are busy. Oh. <laughs> well, we've been sort of working at this kind of thing for almost 30 years, or over 30 years, actually. So um, I suppose, you know, we've, we've wrapped up quite a lot of work, really. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely. Um, you know, uh, Ray, one of the things I'd like to talk about, is my first encounter with your work was your, I think, groundbreaking and incredibly important collection of all the stories of Robert Aikman. Um, th- this is, uh, he is a name that's not as well known as others, but I think he's incredibly important. I think he's also important, speaks to both of your kind of work and the, the way he creates a, a tone of the weird in situations that are otherwise somewhat mundane and normal. So talk about um, discovering Robert Aikman and deciding to publish his work when it had gone kind of, the last that I remember seeing um, the stains in a Ramsey Campbell edited anthology, and it just I just just knocked my socks off. Well, we were um, aware of his name, but it was in a conversation with um, David Tibet of Current Ninety Three. He asked whether or not we were fans of Aitken, and said that we should be, and I admitted that we we'd never read him. And the next day, um, David had sent recorded delivery, all eight of his short story collections for us to read. And wow. we just we just fell in love with, with Aitken. Um, and with David, we decided that we would try and reprint him, uh, reprint Aitken. And we just happened to ask at the right time. The estate um, were you know, well disposed towards us reprinting all the collections, uh, all the stories, and we still have them in print ooh, over 20 years later. You know, one of the things that I, I really like about Aikman's work and yours is this great and subtle combination. Bo- uh, both of you do it really well. You do a, you have slightly different tones. Is uh, between, as I say, common situations that are mundane in that regular people who might actually re- be reading books and not be rock stars, superstars, or ultra wealthy, or super- secret superheroes, uh, 
can relate to. I mean, these are normal people doing kind of normal things, and yet the world around them is never normal. The world around all of us is never normal, and we've been received a rather a rock-solid reminder of that over the past five or so years. So talk about that sensibility of discovering the strange both within and without the normal world around you. And Rosalie, talk about it. You work primarily in short stories, and, and I love your work because you plunge us in, in through the storm. There are stories where I literally felt like I was almost going insane with the the character, and it was a, a really unusual sensation to be able to create in a literary work. Um, yeah, I suppose I am interested in um, unusual experiences and um, sort of uh, seeing the world through someone else's eyes. Um, so, yeah, some of those characters do have a pretty hard time. Um and I'm I'm interested in um, you know the outsider and um, the un, the forgotten people of the world, um, and uh, uh, I think that um, you know the world well, the world can be a very um, very difficult place for some people and a very strange and um, it can be in a good way. And in some of my stories, you know, strange in a good way. It's not all um, it's not all terrifying. No, um, I think that's one of the things, that's true of both of your works, that it, the, the strange and the weird is not always threatening or, you know, holding a knife behind its back. Sometimes it, it's holding an opportunity. And yes. that's really important because opportunities arise whenever, especially in, in this world, when you see an opportunity arise, they're about as common as ghosts. Actually, <laughs> and they often bear a resemblance of that because when you see an opportunity in the future, it's often related to something that you've seen or done or experienced in the past. Well, it's amazing how in everyone's life there are things we can't quite explain. Um, and we don't always say that they were ghosts or poltergeists or anything supernatural. They're just th some things that don't ever make sense. And in Robert Aikman's stories, things don't make sense. And I think that both Rosalie and I um, reflect that in our work. And we have a completely different authorial voice to, to each other, especially to Aikman, who was um, quite sort of old-fashioned and reactionary, but whose um, strangely romantic, backward-looking um, view of the world fits perfectly with the idea of ghost stories and, and the world not being um, exactly what you thought it was. You know, um, one of the things, Ray, with your latest novel, Waiting for the End of the World, I, I just really personally loved it. And one of the things that I thought was so great about it was when we think of the apocalypse and the end of the world, you know, again, I'm just seeing those scenes at the end, you know, what, the 35 hours at the end of the third Lord of the Rings movie, and the 15 hours at the end of the Avengers movie, which are essentially just scenes of endless people rushing at one another, kind of World War I style. We, we will never get past World War I. <laughs> but um, the apocalypse doesn't have to be that way. And in fact, most of us have experienced what is essentially an apocalypse, but on a personal level. And I think that that's what your, your novel gets to and create somebody who has really good at, at the beginning. But, you know, the, what can happen to you, um, the changes that can happen to you can bring about an end, not to the world, but to your world. And sometimes that's worse. Sure. Um, I mean, to a certain extent, the book was um, influenced by a friend of mine who in the 1990s, and he knows that um, I've used this as inspiration for the book, and he's read it. But he uh, joined a church, as he would call it, um, that prophesied that the world was going to end in the year 2000, and there would be a proper, um, full-on biblical apocalypse. Um, there's no way that you'd miss it. Now, I tend to think that history is on my side in doubting that, rather than his side. Um, but I decided that 
what I would do is kind of meet him halfway. He believed that uh, a chap had appeared on earth who was Christ. Um, now, I decided that if someone actually had those supernatural abilities, but wasn't necessarily Christ, you know, I was kind of wondering what would happen. You could end up with someone who could do some amazing things, some supernatural things, but he wasn't necessarily the Son of Christ come again, and he wasn't necessarily going to bring about a complete universal apocalypse as, as had been promised. So I was kind of playing around with that idea, and yes, individually and personally, you may see the world appear to end, and the rest of the world don't notice it. My mate tells me that uh, in the year 2000, the world did end for those who had the eyes to see it. Obviously, he did, and he has moved into a different phase. I just happen to be insensitive enough not to notice that. There's a, well, I'm really interested by people, by end-of-the-world kind of cults, because it's not something new with the year 2000. I mean, they go back up hundreds of years of people mm-hmm. believing that the world is going to end. And, and there was one locally here in Oakland uh, that, that had similar views. And I think that those ideas of, you know, the end of everything come from personal experiences. Now, I really like your uh, character in here, um, uh, Elliot Barton, because at the beginning of the book, you know, he's in a pretty good place, uh, but it doesn't stay as good as he might hope it would. No, he, he's, he's under threat, and so he's always known that something happened in his past that is possibly going to come back and haunt him. But I was also playing around with the idea that two witnesses to an event in the past, him and his friend who has resurfaced after many years, might completely have, or have completely different memories of exactly the same events even though it was an incredibly important one. Um, because you know, memory can't be trusted. Um, which one of them is right about what actually happened in the past? Uh, maybe they're both right, maybe they're both wrong. Uh, Rosalie, um, you know, in the, the story, one of the stories I, I, that really struck me in your book, I think that gives such a great example of the super ultra personal experience of the world because everybody has a very personal experience of the world and it was really a fun story too was toady so, <laughs> <laughs> I, I i just thought that was a a, a delightful example uh, of truly weird fiction that is very unpredictable so what brought you to write this story <laughs> well i grew up on a farm in the south of england and um we had um, we had quite a lot of toads on our farm, and my brother Duncan and I did sort of have a tank full of toads at one point that we kept as pets. So it kind of comes from that. I mean, obviously, unfortunately, that none of them talked like they do in the story, but um, <laughs> uh, it, it does. It, it it is sort of based on on that. Um, I mean, I suppose there's quite a long tradition of um, animals talking in um, weird stories, but um, it just and, and of toads being sort of fairly magical creatures. Um, but yeah, it does have a sort of a, a real uh, genesis, that story. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think that, you know, that seems uh, apparent in uh, your stories. And, and you have a couple of stories in here where you take on the voice of somebody who is clearly not connected to the same world the rest of us are and not dealing with it in the same the way the rest of us are. So could you talk about creating, dipping into the mind of somebody who's going completely insane or already starts out the story insane and that is slowly revealed through through the, the inner monologue. I mean, the stories in, in this book were, I found them, although there's no real horror in them in terms of monsters or killers or violence or any of that that the stories where somebody's going mad were some of the most disturbing things i've ever read so talk about delving into that stream of consciousness of that is extremely unpleasant well um i suppose some of it's from personal experience um i'm bipolar Mm. um so I'm writing from a position of some knowledge. 
of, um, of um, alternative experiences, should we say. I mean, I, I've kind of been public about this before, um, so I don't have any problem about it being, you know, out in the open. Um, but yeah, I'm sort of, obviously, I'm interested in alternative states um, and sort of uh, what's seen as insanity or um, uh, is part of, you know, part of that interest. Um, and I think I'm sort of, it's something that I'm I'm really interested in exploring anyway for, for personal reasons. Now, uh, you you guys are so multi-talented, multi-faceted, you know. <laughs> most Jackson people, very straight. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, most people might be content to write short story collection or two or, you know, a few novel, novels or novellas. You've done all that, but also you're like a really, I think, one of the longest lasting and the highest quality small presses in the world. And I've been following the small presses for about 40 years, I think. Long ago, I was one of the people who got a lifetime subscription to Cemetery Dance Magazine. This was back in about 82 or 80. Was I still at the Blood Factory? I think I might have still been at the Blood Factory then. But eighty four, maybe it was eighty five. But um, so I'd like you to talk about, you know, continuing this work, which is both, you know, I think it, it offers a living, and it offers a living to a wide variety of writers. And you give us a lot of exposure to writers that we might not otherwise see. And there are some incredibly good writers in your publishing uh, vitiae. So talk about just a. Uh, when did you decide to start publishing it? That that's you know a, a non-trivial effort. Well, I have to be honest and say that it was just a um, a hobby that got out of hand. Um, and then when our son came along in '95, I decided, or we decided between us, that I would give up work and become a house husband and look after our son Tim and try and run the business as a little more uh, of a serious sort of um, going concern. Then it got to the point where I had so much work on that Ros had to consider leaving her job, which was properly paid um, and you know, regular income as opposed to you know, running a small press, which is um, every single book is a, a risk. Um, and somehow we are lucky enough that our day job um, is something which we always used to do for fun anyway. And although it comes with a number of stresses, um, you know, some of them quite horrible stresses, like trying to trying to make ends meet sometimes, and you know, we don't expect to sell all of our books. We are grateful for every single sale that we get. Um, it is not nonetheless fun. I mean, there's lots of people out there doing sort of um, boring day jobs, um, and they come home from work, and yes, they've got the money. That boring day job has um, mounted up into a couple hundred books that we've published we're responsible for, which we're you know, incredibly proud of um, and grateful to the various authors who have um, you know, contacted us and sent us manuscripts. And um, yeah, it, we're, we're very pleased with the way it's gone. And you know, over a number of years, you know, Ros has done this um, quietly heroic job of reading through submissions. So while I, did, I sort of traditionally had the easy job of saying, right, we're going to reprint this book by Arthur Mackham, reprint this classic work by um, you know, Robert Louis Stevenson. Ros has then, um, well, not only has she edited some of those books for us, but she's been going through the contemporary fiction that comes in day by day, of which perhaps only about 2%. Um, less than that. Less than that. Um, I mean, it's probably even less than 1% that mm -hmm. we publish, but then Ros can tell you more about that. But that's how we've ended up with authors like Andrew Michael Hurley and Mark Valentine and Angela Slater. Yeah, I mean, really, we, um, we've we always had an open submissions policy. We still do. I should, probably shouldn't say this publicly because we, <laughs> um, we sometimes get inundated by you know manuscripts. But um, I do have a look at everything that comes in, absolutely everything, and everyone gets a reply. And um, But it is a very, very small proportion of people that we, of authors that we end up publishing who, who submit work to us. Um, but, um, you know, it's always a fantastic moment when you're reading something and you think, oh, yeah, 
this is really good. And we snap it up and publish it and hopefully other people enjoy it too. Well, I have to say that, I mean, many of the collections and, and books you published are among my favorites and most reread. I, 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 I'm a super fan of, of Reggie Oliver. Yeah. Angela Slater, The Bitterwood Bible. Oh, my God, that's just uh, an amazing book that should be, you know, yeah. in every single collection everywhere because it's so beautifully written. And one of the things too that i like is you've come up on a, a kind of a look for your for your books so talk about just that design look that lets you know it's i know instantly if it's a hardware express book and it's a beautiful design decision well the the earliest books were meant to be based on some of the sort of limited editions that you used to get in the 1920s which were very sort of austere and plain but elegant and I also really loved the Galangsk, um books, which were that vibrant, bright yellow. Oh, but I yes. never, had, never had the courage to go that yellow. <laughs> and having done a few of these sort of pale cream, yellowy, sort of vanilla kind of um, colours, it's kind of stuck. Um, I'm also um, very uh, affected by artwork. And quite often negatively, especially in the fields that we're in, with sort of, um, you know, horror and supernatural and the strange. A, a picture that doesn't work for me can put me off a book. And I know that's very short-sighted and I should open the book up and ignore, you know, the artwork. But we've, working on the theory that my taste won't be the same as anyone else's, we tended to have little vignettes in the front so that it wouldn't be too sort of glaring and in your face if you didn't like it. And it's ended up being this sort of restrained, controlled, sort of um, hopefully elegant look. It's kind of evolved over the years. I have to say, I really, you know, I hadn't thought about the, the, the vignette effect, but I think that really works. And like you, I mean, I, I'm there are enough books out there that I'm sometimes, unless the reviews are, are you know, I get some kind of word of mouth or something about an author. I mean, I'm quite happy to judge a book by its cover just yeah. because you know um you know uh, i got enough there's enough great things to read but so um let let's talk too because this has gone on for a while throughout your career all these threads have interwoven and one of the threads is uh movie direction you you wrote uh bloody baudelaire was turned into a feature film so talk about uh, your involvement in the video world and how that feeds back and forth into the prose world. Because, you know, prose art creates a different effect. When you're reading a book, the, the reader brings a lot to it. And the kind of prose that you guys specialize in really um, emphasizes that kind of cloud between the author and the reader and the reader can just really see into that cloud the author creates and projects a motion picture in their brain that's just beyond any kind of possible experience in a motion picture which just gives you what you see well i think um we, we are amateurs when it comes to film and video we really are um and although we um with uh, Todd Neamey, Ros and I wrote this screenplay for Bloody Baudelaire, uh, which was filmed as backgammon. We did realise very quickly that the um, the screenwriters don't have um, any power whatsoever, and it's you know, the director has the final say. And I think we had um, rather a different sort of uh, vision for the film than the director. Um, so when we've actually made videos ourselves and been in charge of the whole thing, um, it's been so much easier. Um, because uh, I mean, I was a big fan of writing at the same time as I got into pop music, and it was the early days of videos. And in my mind, all these things were intertwined. I was listening to the Cocteau Twins, uh, who were a wonderfully atmospheric band that didn't have videos. At the same time that I was reading certain books like Roland Tokel's um, The Tenants, and all these things got mixed up in my head. So when we made videos for music. Um, and we've made, even when we made the Coverdale film, which was just purely a, a documentary about the, the dale in which we live um, here in the Yorkshire Dales. Um, 
yeah, I can see that you know, music and images and words, all these things sort of um, have an effect and feed on each other, but they all get filtered through the viewer or the listener or the reader's um, own imagination. And that's where the real alchemy happens. You can only do so much as a writer or a filmmaker. The person who's actually experiencing it does 50% of the work. I think that that understanding, which I've never heard another writer speak as directly to as you do, is absolutely critical and in a good sense um, responsible for the approachability and the engagement of both of your writing. I mean, Waiting for the End of the World is just a joy to read because a lot of really good stuff happens in it, and we're happy to see that happen just as much. I mean, it's this page-turning, more page-turning, in a sense, for the really joyous material than it, as it is for the strange. And the difference between the strange material and the joyous material is blurry, and that's also really an effective way to bring your life into the readers lives and for the readers to bring their lives into your work and that's really an important uh, alchemy I, I do think that um certain writing lends itself to that more than others i mean i love um writers like um i don't know arthur Macken, who will describe the way that a cloud looks or a tree looks and that's wonderful because he has got that lyricism which is you know, beyond compare. Um, and the, and the, the rhythm of his sentences are wonderful. But um, he's doing most of the work for you. And I do think there are writers out there who can write very sort of sparingly, and will, they'll just mention a tree and an effect of sunlight, and that's it. It's then up to you as the reader. Um, and that, that can be so important. You don't have to over-describe things. You know, Rosalie, I'm going to read to you a quote from your story, which I think is extremely important, and it really struck me. Um, the quote is, this is something that has happened many times before. I'm a sociologist on a field trip, a voyeur of the ordinary. <laughs> I, I, I think that that is such a, a great just approach to writing fiction. I mean, one of the things I think that readers and writers can learn from the fiction you both write and publish is an approach to getting into the place where you want to write fiction. And I'm hoping that someday you guys will write a book, maybe uh, together or, or separately, about writing fiction and how how to approach just the, the task and the craft of it. Because... I think you're really adept at it, and it shows through in, in the way what you write about. Uh, um, that's very kind of you to say so. Um, I I don't know. I think that um, it's such a personal thing, writing and developing a writing style. I mean, I haven't sat down and thought, oh, I know, I'm going to write like this. It's just how it sort of comes out. And <laughs> I don't I don't really plan my stories. I just have an idea or an atmosphere or a place or a character that I start with that I'm interested in and um, I start writing and take it from there really and it sometimes develops into a sort of quite complicated plot and sometimes it doesn't really it just meanders along <laughs> um, it comes to a natural end and you know I, I, so I don't know I don't think I could write I, I it's not within me to write a book about how to write how to write no, I did read um, Stephen King's on writing um, a few years ago, and I think that his um, recommendations on how to write are actually very good, and they make greater sense. And unlike some writers we know who are very rude about creative writing courses, I do think there's a lot you can get from creative writing courses, and you know, hearing what other writers say and, and you know, learning from what they do. But at the end of the day, it's still got to be your personal voice that makes it worth reading or not. Um, there's a lot of craft that can be taught. But the actual story just comes down to you as a writer um, and whether that resonates with a reader. You know, um, also, I have to mention your, your music, Ray and Rosalie, because you're on the, the 
the latest uh, recording, um, the sodality of the shadows. When I listened to it, that was a really striking record. And, and my one sentence review is it sounds to me like a, a record of Johnny Cash sparse guitar solos recorded by Brian Eno. <laughs> so, <laughs> well, I, I, I know it's, it is very heavily influenced by a band called La Bradford. And only yesterday I looked them up on the internet. Um, I was just looking to, because they're one of those bands where various people have been in various other bands. And Ross mentioned Dwayne Eddy at one point. And there was a wonderful review of Le Bradford as being Dwayne Eddy playing Sarty. <laughs> and I thought, that, that's exactly what I would love to, to do. <laughs> I mean, it's been said already and they've done that. Um, so what we've done is very heavily influenced by them because I just think they're marvellous. But having uh, written music uh, sort of a bit more seriously over the last sort of 10 years, that album was very much an attempt to try and do something that created atmospheres and ideas. Um, again, so that uh, the listener would imagine all kinds of things going on, but it would be a soundtrack to the most you know, strange and weird and wonderful film you've ever seen late at night as a teenager and never understood what it was you'd been watching. Um, and then Mark Valentine, chatting to him about it, he offered to write the little vignettes uh, which describe the music as he sees it. And they are wonderful. I mean, his, his writing is brilliant anyway. I, I do think Mark Valentine is a poet more than a short story writer. He's a poet who happens to write great short stories. And his vignettes were his version of what's going on in the music. And hopefully other people would hear this, the same music but imagine all kinds of other things which are more personal to them. But hopefully weird and wonderful. You know, I, I haven't thought about it until this moment, but that music would have made, is the perfect soundtrack to my experience in Thirsk. And, and when I was in <laughs> Thirsk, and one of the things I remember most was I sat in, in one of the pubs and interviewed Peter Bell, writes wonderful ghost stories. I mean, really, definitely a fine writer. And after the interview, um, it was a day much like it is here today, you know, kind of overcast, a little foggy. Um, he just got up and he walked straight out into the moor and disappeared <laughs> into the fog. And I thought, oh my, this is just like a movie or like one of his stories. Well, and, we know we, we know Peter quite well. and um, He does that. He, he does that, We yeah. meet him in York quite frequently and he will just appear from a side street. Yeah, usually about three hours late, by the way. Yeah, he's <laughs> always late. And then at the end of the day, he will just wander off in some random yeah. direction. Yeah. You know, uh, Rosalie, one of the things that struck me as I read your book is you really work the short story form and and different. The form is very different. Like Ray's novel is really a novel and it has all the joys of a novel. We get to know characters and see them change over time and discover their past and we'll see them confront their own future. And I think that's a really beautiful way to write and often one will read short stories and they're kind of like just that only like you know on a super heavy diet um your stories are not like that your stories really take advantage of the short story form and and just drop us in a place or in a mind and and take us through this kind of uh, you know uh, appropriately short journey <laughs> but you you pack a lot in so talk about um, your understanding of the short story format. Well, I I um I really like short stories, and I I mean um, Robert Aitman said the ghost story was akin to poetry, and I sort of think that short stories are more like poetry than than, than obviously a novel is, in that sometimes it's what you don't say is just as important as what you do say, and um uh um. Oh, I completely forgot what I was going to say. One thing I'd say about your short stories is that um, a lot of contemporary writers, especially novelists who then decide to write short stories, a lot of outside of our genre, there are a lot of people who write short stories which are just a vignette. They're just a little slice of life. Um, it starts at four o'clock in the afternoon and finishes at seven o'clock. It's completely arbitrary and it presents you with a character in a place. 
they're very very seldom proper stories. Um, what Ross does and what the great short story writers in our genres do is that they do actually have, if not a big beginning and a middle and end, they do have a reason for existing. And they do take you through the whole experience. And Ross is drawing on that experience, uh, that's um, tradition in her short stories, where you know that um, something began, you were taken through something, and, and there is a conclusion of sorts, even if you don't know what the conclusion is. Um, they are a, a proper um, yeah. proper little world. Well, they have a form, don't they? they have a, yeah. yeah. Too many short stories by contemporary writers um, outside, you know, in the mainstream have no form. I mean, I quite like Poe's um, view of short stories, that you should have your unity of form and um, that, that it should be quite a sort of single-minded thing uh, of short story. And um, uh, I kind of, I, I suppose I'm just trying to, I mean, they're all, they're all quite different, my stories, I think, from each other. Mm-hmm. And I'm just trying to get the, the best out of the idea I've had, you know, present the idea or the character or the place or the atmosphere or whatever it is that, that um, inspired me to write the story in the first place in the, in the best way that, that I can in that particular form, if you see what I mean. Well, you know, I, I really agree with you that one of the things I liked about reading your collection is it, you never know from one story to the next, well, where the heck you're going to land. Uh, but <laughs> yeah, there's a kind of a, a, a uniformity of voice or, you know, a persistence yeah. of vision, which is, uh, I think, you know, uh, that you are a, a voyeur of the ordinary and yet you you understand that underneath the ordinary or out just on the edges or on the outside things are, are often rather stranger than we know or even can know. And, and yeah. I think that that idea of um, you kind of take us, both of you in your work, take us to the edge of what, from what we think we don't know to what we don't know. We don't know uh, the, the famous unknown unknowns. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah I mean, I, I, I sort of started off my professional life as an archaeologist. And I'm sort of very aware of that civilizations do come and go and that nothing is forever and that things are uncertain, really. Um, everything's uncertain. Um, and that's kind of the, sta- the, the starting point to, uh, to most of my stories, I think. And now, you are both um, members, uh, sovereign members of Bookaholics Anonymous, are <laughs> not so anonymous. <laughs> And so I'd like you to to talk about the importance of books in your lives to you personally, but also I think your mission, whether you realize it or not, to bring the idea and the joy of books out to, to the world and by virtue of what you publish and how you publish I mean, I think that the low-key nature of your publishing and the fact that you're not part of some publishing empire that's just like, you know, clocking out books like a, a, a factory are, you know, that's part of the charm and also the incredible power of your books. Well, I think Russ and I both come from slightly different directions in that I'm a, I'm a collector of books. Mm-hmm. And some of the very first things we published were obscure bits of uh, writing by Arthur Macken, which I wanted on my shelf, but weren't either weren't available or had never been published. So I was just trying to enhance my own book collection. Um, and to a certain extent, I'm still doing the same thing. I mean, it doesn't mean that I don't really appreciate the prose. I mean, that is the whole idea of it. But um, Rossi is much more of a um, you know, buy a paperback, read it, get everything out of which you can, pass it on to the charity shop and leave the next book. <laughs> so, uh, is, that, is that fair? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> now you have a, a, a lovely bookshelf behind you with a lot of books in it. Um, is it do you guys have, we, I've had issues in my house of being told that, you know, it's only so big. It can only hold so much <laughs> stuff. I, I, know, I, I, I have that problem. Yeah, yeah. Ross so I'm wondering it. whether you have a, a, a TARDIS problem. Well, I call it the TARDIS problem, and I just tell my wife, it's bigger on the inside than it looks. Yeah. 
we have finally decided to actually um, display the Tartarus books um, properly on shelves, which meant removing other books, uh, which was incredibly painful. Oh, I, I, I think know the that's, process. Uh, yeah, I, I'm, I'm getting a little more selective in my collecting. I think as a teenager, I wanted to keep every single book that I'd read. That seemed like a reasonable aspiration until I was about 25 and realized, you know, this is not going to work. But I, I part with books uh, after a great deal of thought, and it causes me a great deal of pain. Um, but Ros is quite good at stopping me from... I, mean, <laughs> I, I, I would just lie in every room with bookshelves. Um, Ros does suggest that maybe, you know, paintings, furniture... Uh, things like that are worth having in the house as well. <laughs> well, I mean, in that sense, I, I, I'm thinking that uh, were some of the experiences in Waiting for the End of the World autobiographical, especially, I mean, the the scenes where um, Elliot is with his friend finding books in, in that ancient warehouse were really um, sticky. I can... I can go there and visit and that's i think true of both of your books is that you get to a point where our memories of reading the book my memories of reading the book are so strong it's like i can go back and revisit them like a vacation i mean in a sense that when i think back uh, you know of sitting in the pub in thirsk where we thought you know they had it was pie fiction we thought and our first night there, we tried to leave and just go for a walk at night, and the door was locked from the outside. We couldn't get out. And we're thinking, "Oh my, we're going to be in the pie with pie of Thursday." <laughs> but uh, oh, I agree. oh no, I agree entirely, and that, that's one of the reasons I've always kept books is mm -hmm. that you can take it down from the shelf, read a couple of pages, and it's like being, you know, twenty-one again when you first read that book, uh, you know, in a particular place. Um, but it was recommended by a particular friend. Um, it brings it all back. That's why I, I keep books as much as for, for you know, rereading from cover to cover occasionally. But you mentioned Thirsk. I mean, Thirsk is obviously the background to half the story in Waiting for the End of the World. And the, um, the book recycling plant that I describe is based on a real book recycling plant, which would have been about half a mile from your pub. Oh, really? Um, the, uh, we used to go there to obtain cardboard, um, cardboard boxes to, to wrap books. And they, um, it's quite painful there sometimes because they, they will get remainders from libraries and they can just be piled up in huge heaps. And stopping myself when I visited there from rummaging through the books has been very difficult. So yeah, it's based in a real place. And I, and I did actually ask them whether I could, um, uh, you know, describe it and say it was in first because it is a real place. Wow. Well, um, I think that that gives some power to to you know, your story because it really does have that a feeling of it creates in the reader a, a sympathy and, and it's it's empathetic and a sympathetic. We really like all that, and we can imagine it and live it ourselves. And if you're interested in books, I think that um, that makes your books, and in fact, what you both write, more interesting. And that's that's not a bad strategy if you're writing a, writing a book. The person reading is probably going to be interested in reading books, so that when you have characters, as you do, Ray who are actually avid readers and like reading books. I mean, that's a smart it, it, yeah. decision because the chances are your readers are too. It, yeah. seems, it seems to be a recurring theme in Ray's, all of Ray's books no, and stories. I, I, I do actually fight against you know, characters <laughs> being book lovers. Um, in fact, I've got a third novel coming out, hopefully later this year. And I really went out of my way not to mention books in it. You know, I really had to stop writing about books. Because, yeah, so many of them have been about books. Even, in fact, I don't even think about waiting for the world as being about books. It's about religion. But no books have crept in there, of course. <laughs> well, well, I think... Um, so, Ray, talk about write, writing about religion. You know, it's a fraught subject these days, and I think the way you write about it is very, very interesting. Uh, you... 
for you and I think for all of us, although we don't always realize this, religion is a very personal experience. It, and the way it's often portrayed is a kind of like a group experience. And I think that your take on it is is super informative and really well well thought out. That's very nice of you to say so. Um, I mean, I'm an agnostic, whereas Ros is an atheist. Ros ha has the the position of not believing not believing there's a god, and that strikes me as almost as sort of definitive as saying there is a god. I don't know what's out there, so I call myself an agnostic. I, I, I'm not saying that um, I found out either way, but it does strike me that there are so many weird and wonderful things in this world that can't be explained by a completely materialistic universe um, in which we are just this strange um, blip as, as human beings that happen to be on this planet. But I have no idea what the answer is. Um, but having said that, I'm absolutely fascinated by, and especially throughout the 1990s, there were all the millennial cults that appeared. Uh, every week there's a story about a, another cult that believed the world was going to end, and they why people believe, I mean, I understand there's all kinds of reasons why people like to believe, but why there was this um, preponderance of belief that the world had to end due to this completely arbitrary date struck me as very, you know, absolutely fascinating. And, yeah, frankly, a, a, a friend um, also believed that, and I, and I found, and I still find, his religious beliefs absolutely fascinating. Um, I can't share them. Uh, I do my best to be respectful of them because they are obviously very sincerely held. Um, so yeah, it just religious belief generally is absolutely fascinating because it's it's not based on any kind of. And I, I think I'm a scientist and an empiricist. Um, I want to know why people believe these things you know, from any religion. Uh, well, I'm a definite believer in uh, what Stanislaw Lem called the pericolypse, which for him, he thought that the, the apocalypse had, had already come because there were so many books being published that finding the seven, grand, the seven books that would change the world would be as easy as, amidst all the books being published, it would be as easy as finding seven specific grains of sand in the Sahara Desert. And he thought those books had already, he posited that those books had already been published, but were lost beneath the strata of, strata of trash. So instead of the apocalypse, which is out there about to come, he came up with the idea of the pericolypse, which is an end of the world that has already come to pass, but went unnoticed in the general haste. <laughs> well, that's kind of what, I, what, my, what, my, yeah, yeah. what my friend believes. Um, as far as he's concerned, the world ended, and we just didn't notice. We were that insensitive. <laughs> yeah, well, but the idea of um, yeah, the, the, the seven books, um, I mean, I think we're all tempted, especially um, when we're meant to be working and we come across social media and someone says, list your seven favorite books or the seven books which will end the world. Um, we can all have wonderful arguments about it and spend you know, hours and hours you know, substituting one book for another to come up with a perfect list. Well, you can. It's not, I, I, always, I always go completely blank when anybody asks me something like that. So. <laughs> well, I, I can't think, think of anything. <laughs> I think but my problem is that there are too many. And I start <laughs> off with Arthur Macken's A Hill of Dreams and then think, well, actually, there are two or three other great ones by Arthur Macken. Should I be substituting one for the other? And then I have to think about you know, all the other authors I enjoy and suddenly my, my seven favorite books is has to be whittled down from 77 books. <laughs> exactly. So um, what are what can we expect next from both of you, from Tartarus Press, from your music work? Uh, what should we look forward to? You have a new novel coming out, Ray. Tell us about it. Um, I've got a new novel called Heaven's Hill, which hopefully will be coming out with Zagava Press. Um, when would that be? I think it's later this year. Rosalie? Um, I'm working on another collection of short stories. It was supposed to be a novel, but um, I found that my novel turned into a load of short stories, so I gave up and decided that I'd just write some more short stories. 
<laughs> and forthcoming from Tartarus Press. I know there's uh, a new well, Reggie Oliver collection out. Yeah. We we don't like saying what we're publishing too far in advance. Okay. Um, because in the past it's jinxed books. Suddenly it, you know, there's a slight problem and a book doesn't come out for two years. So we've always announced books as we actually have them delivered. And we know that when we tell people the book is appearing, we have you know, several hundred physical copies which will be posted. So it's, um, if the book is announced, it is there. It, it does exist. But no, we've just published yeah, the Reggie Oliver collection, um, which is a contemporary collection. Um, at the same time, we published the reprinted Oliver Onions, a great classic collection of supernatural stories. Um, collection of essays by Mark Valentine, Senses and Obelisks, which are essays all about books. Um, yeah, well, we're, we, we have about seven or eight books sort of forward that we are planning and we're working on in different stages, but um, maybe we can keep yeah. those close to Yeah, it's an interesting contemporary. I'm, I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, I, I know the exact feeling. It's best not to uh, offer dinner until it's ready to plate. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, and how about music? I, I really liked your music, and I'm going to have to go back into your uh, music uh, bibliography and pick up some of those pieces. So talk about what you're doing next. And who um, who are the players in, in the, the sodality of the shadows? Well, the original idea was to make them completely shadowy and not say who was on the record, but that makes it quite hard to market it. <laughs> uh, so we, we had to admit that... Um, I'm kind of the, um, I'm in charge, I'm sort of the Marky Smith character, telling other people what to do to a certain extent. Um, so we had uh, John Mueller uh, on drums, um, a wonderful character called um, Cousin Silas, who lives not very far from here. We've only known him in the last few years, but unfortunately the pandemic, um, we've still not met up. We played some beautiful guitars. Um, Mark Valentine came in with the words, and Ross um, not only with um, uh, reading um, various sort of bits and pieces, um, providing sort of vocal track to some of the songs, but um, also an absolutely invaluable editor. I mean, she edits my writing, and I play her my music, and she'll say, nope, that doesn't work, or yep, that works. Uh, so Ross has <laughs> played her part in shaping it. Uh, but in terms of any sort of uh, new work, it's just I tend to do stuff as I go along, and try and work out where it's going. And I have enthusiasms and some plenty of things fall by the wayside and don't work. Um, nothing's quite coming together at the moment. Um, I'm simply re revisiting number stations again at the moment. But at some point I will um, ask others like um, Cousin Silas to uh, you know, add some guitars and uh, it wants to do some more readings. I've been speaking with Ray Russell and Rosalie Parker. Ray's latest novel is Waiting for the End of the World. Rosalie's latest short story collection is Through the Storm. Together, they are the publishers of Tartarus Press. Thank you for joining me, Ray and Rosie. Thank you. Pleasure. It's been lovely. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. <laughs>